0: Technology is upgrading patients from being the passenger on their healthcare ride to being their own co pilot. What's driving this change, and how can you prepare your clients for that future? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers.
1: Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and Chief Transformation Strategist, David Saltzman. Announcing
0: Ascend, the agency growth and leadership summit that's coming to Nashville, Tennessee this January. Ascend is a fresh, interactive experience exclusively for benefit agency leaders, and focused on providing practical and proven strategies to help you maximize your growth. This isn't just a bunch of talking heads. It's a hands-on, take-it-home-and-implement-it ideas and tools meeting. I'm going to be there, and I'm so psyched about this meeting that I've arranged a special discount just for Shift Shapers listeners. To get all of the details, go to www.shiftshapersonline.com and click on the Ascend logo at the top right. Hey, thanks for being among the thousands of Shift Shapers listeners who tune in each week to hear the top subject matter experts in our industry talk about ideas, techniques, and best practices that help you to build your knowledge base and your practice. I know many of you subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that you get each week's podcast delivered as soon as it goes live. And that's a great way to get the jump on every new episode. To make it even easier, and for those of you who may not be iTunes or Stitcher users, we've added an exciting new feature to the ShiftShapersOnline.com website. If you click the new subscribe button, we'll automatically notify you the minute each new episode is published and we'll also send you a short description showing who we're chatting with and what we're discussing. And it will let us notify you about some upcoming special offers, online content, and webinars we're building just for ShiftShapers listeners. So go to www.ShiftShapersOnline.com and click the subscribe button. Our motto is listen, learn, profit. Now you have a way to do that ahead of the crowd. Subscribe today. On this episode of Shift Shapers, we're very excited to be speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, who is a practicing cardiologist, professor of genomics, and director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute in La Jolla, California, and we've asked Dr. Tobel to join us to talk about his most recent book, which is called The Patient Will See You Now, which outlines and develops the beginnings of a long overdue shift in medicine that will, as his subtitle says, put the future of medicine in your hands. So with that, welcome.
1: Well, thanks very much, David. Great to join you.
0: We appreciate it. First of all, I must tell you on air what I told you off air. It's a The book is a great read. I've got more pencil underlining than I think there was ink used to produce the book, so um, for me, that's always a sign of a good book. The overarching theme is democratized medicine. So maybe we start there. And can you explain, you know, what democratized medicine is about? And I know you use a very interesting Seinfeld story in the book.
1: Sure. Well, what it really means is making it available to all, but in particular in medicine, it's really the symmetry of information for the consumer for the individual. Which, of course, has not been the case in the whole history of the medical profession. There's been this tremendous gap between access and even ownership of information between the the patient and the doctor.
0: You know, hence the title. One of the things that you use as a recurring theme throughout the book that you believe is bringing about this democratization, if you will, is the smartphone. It seems so interesting that such a small yet pervasive device would be able to do that. How are the two related?
1: Well, that's actually, I think, um, the the central point. That's the, the new tool, the vector of how this is going to be achieved. And I liken it, as you know, David, to the Gutenberg printing press, because back in the 1400s, the public was not able to read and had no access to printed information. And here we are at this momentous time. When all people will have the ability to not only read their medical information but to generate it through the smartphone. And the smartphone is capable of, it's kind of like a Swiss Army knife or a stem cell because it not only can you get sensor data of every medical metric, you can do all the labs, you can do most of the physical exam, you can summon a doctor immediately through the screen or through your house. I mean, the power of the phone for each individual to change how medicine and healthcare is rendered is extraordinary and grossly underappreciated at the moment.
0: Well, and I think we'll delve into as we go through the interview, maybe a few examples of that. But again, since we started thematically, let's touch on one other area that I think is key to understanding what you're talking about. And that is this change from what you call, rightly so, medical paternalism. And that goes back to the Hippocratic Oath and probably beyond that, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. It actually goes back to, in, conceptually to Imhotep, who was the first uh, physician hundreds of years before Hippocrates, but that was 400 BC, so we're going way back. And it turns out he was not only a physician, he also was a priest. And so that whole doctor knows best and this kind of superiority paternalistic problem has been embedded for you know, more than two millennia. So it, we're, it's going to take a little while to turn it around, but the great inversion of medicine is just starting to take hold.
0: And a lot of folks use cell phones and smartphones in particular to advance this new, relatively new notion of social media. Is that also an important driver, and what are some examples that you might cite?
1: Right. Well, this connectivity, of course, has um, generated these online health communities, like patients like me and and so many others, where peers are contacted with the same condition. And then there's unlimited exchange of uh, information and ideas and what works for you for particular conditions. And so these communities are large and account for collectively millions of people that hunt out others. And this is a whole different source of information for patients that they never had previously and uh, most of it like everything else now is being done through mobile devices not through desktop com- computers and so this is just one of the many factors of this digital infrastructure where this you know broadband internet and pervasive connectivity and cloud and supercomputing all these things have happened essentially at the same time and that's what set up this massive radical change uh, of medicine it hasn't taken hold yet but it will
0: well and and maybe the other side of the coin from the online patient communities is what you call moom m-o-o-m you talk a little bit about what that is and and why that also will become a, a key driver in the change that you see coming
1: well the problem we have with the whole idea of um education and physicians is that you know once they get out of their training, it's very hard to have any real impact on their knowledge base and uh, particularly when things are changing so quickly like genomics and wireless devices and uh, telemedicine. So the idea of having massive open online medicine not only would be able to get to doctors, to get them much more up to speed, but the biggest uh, thing is that when every doctor was treating a patient and the patient was willing to share their data, we could develop enormous knowledge resources in medicine such that, for example, you had a new diagnosis of cancer, but now there were billions of people in this resource where you could match up all your characteristics, your genome sequence, everything you can imagine, with the closest, nearest neighbors, if you will, and then you could be able to predict from other people in the resource what is the best treatment and outcomes. And so this whole concept of a MOOM or a big medicine knowledge resource, that's if you can get Facebook with 1.6 billion people, we could do this in the future. And it's not going to happen through doctors, it's going to happen through patients.
0: You know, it's interesting. One of my very, very first clients in the insurance business many moons ago was a hemoncologist who told me that he felt that doctors would get off their pedestals when patients got off their knees. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Is this technology going to allow patients to kind of take a preeminent role?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is inevitable. Whenever there's information that's eminently portable, as it is now in the digital era, especially when the bulk of information is going to be generated by the patients on their devices that they own, and rightfully they should own all their medical data, this is a path, a new, really different way to go forward where the patient takes charge and is really the one driving. And, you know, this whole idea of being upgraded from passenger to co-pilot, is a good way to explain the different position and the different stewardship that each individual can take. And, David, I don't mean to say that everyone would do this. There are many consumer patients that like to be uh, suppressed or like to be in the current mode. But the vast majority in many different consumer surveys indicate that they would prefer this uh, in-charge position. This is a whole very popular movement that is is starting to take hold.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor. Imagine a place where you could discover proven business-building strategies and pick the minds of top benefit agency leaders in the industry to maximize your own firm's growth and success. Well, now there is such a place. Announcing Ascend, the Agency Growth and Leadership Summit coming to Nashville, Tennessee this January. Ascend will be hosted by my friends Nelson Griswold and Scott Cantrell. Authors of the industry best-selling book, Do or Die, Reinventing Your Benefits Agency for Post-Reform Success, and founders of one of the most successful marketing and sales consultancies in the industry, Bottom Line Solutions. Ascend is a fresh, interactive experience exclusively for benefit agency leaders and focused on providing practical and proven strategies to help you maximize your growth. I'm going to be there, and I'm so excited about this totally different type of meeting, That I've arranged a special discount just for Shift Shapers listeners. This event is invitation only, so there is an application process to attend. To get all of the details, go to www.shiftshapersonline.com and click on the Ascend logo at the top right of the page. See you in Nashville. And now, back to our interview. And wouldn't you imagine, I I suspect that that's true, that there are some folks who still like it the way kind of it is, but wouldn't you suspect that as more and more millennials come online in the quote-unquote adult world, which they are right now, and being digital natives, they're going to almost expect that medicine will start working the way all of the other aspects of their digital lives work?
1: Yeah, exactly. The problem is we don't want to wait just for the millennials to grow up. As a baby boomer, I think there's many of us that want a different type of health care. And one that is not only going to be where patients drive it, but one that's so much more economical and so much more ideal. Because, for example, today you wait on average in the United States to see a primary care doctor 2.6 weeks to get an appointment. Then when you finally get there, the average wait is 61 minutes from the time of the appointment. And then you get in there and there's a seven-minute encounter with the doctor who typically is pecking away at a keyboard and you don't even really have eye contact, minimal, with the doctor. Well, this is not what we envisioned, any of us, including the doctor side, for how healthcare would be rendered. But for the same copay cost in most employer health plans, you can tap on your phone, talk to a doctor immediately, even have one come to your house and you get away from all this stuff, it could be two o'clock in the morning and you're now connected to the medical community. And so we have a new culture, an attitude of on-demand, mobile on-demand, and on-demand medicine is really going forward. And now the fact that you can examine your child's eardrums to see if they have an ear infection and get that tenfold magnified view analyzed by a cloud computing algorithm which is the most common reason, of course, why kids are seen by a pediatrician. Or you can have your heart rhythm analyzed by touching your fingers on your smartphone and have that uh, computer algorithm read your cardiogram. And all these things are preempting the immediate need for doctors because the diagnostics are being done by validated software algorithms. And the doctors now change their role to oversight of that data that's been collected and interpreted and ma- mainly in the treatment mode, you know, what, what should we do now kind of thing so this is I think a whole different look and it's, I think it's uh, we've seen so many signs of it now it's extraordinary and and this is all taking advantage of Moore's Law that is cheap chips. 50 years of Moore's Law and the fact that most people don't realize and I think your audience may know but there's 2 billion-plus transistors in each of our smartphones. And these have become so cheap tips that the ability to do health care, like the, the examples I just mentioned, like electrocardiogram, the, the smartphone, ear exam, and, and on and on and on, that we never had that potential before.
0: Well, and even beyond that, I mean, I was reading an article a couple of days ago. Google is apparently in their labs experimenting with a contact lens that reads and reports A1C data directly from, I guess, the fluids in your eye to your cell phone and then off to your physicians. So it can get pretty esoteric too.
1: Well, the glucose uh, sensor on the contact lens through tears is just one way in which glucose will be assessed. You know, we have an immense number of people with diabetes or risk pre-diabetes in the world. And the fact that They wouldn't have to ever do finger sticks again because a tiny sensor on their skin or, as you mentioned, the contact lens, would give continuous readout to their smartphone. And we're talking about 80% of people in the world will have a smartphone with Internet connectivity by 2020. So this is not just a U.S. thing. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and it's really impactful when you think about how... You couldn't have a sensor so cheap that you could use uh, if you didn't have what happened in the last 50 years of, of uh, hardware uh, of computer chips.
0: Sure. Let's talk a little bit about markets in, in a broader sense because that's where an awful lot of our listeners spend their time. And you make a point in the book that I thought was kind of interesting, and, and it, it does sum up the marketplace. You call the U.S. healthcare market unique, opaque, and irrational. How did that happen? And is there any other market that's parallel to ours, or is ours the only weird one left outstanding?
1: Well, weird would be a nice descriptor, David. It more like has perverse incentives. It does overcooks everything. I mean, you know, like today there was the announcement of the mammography revised guidelines by the American Cancer Society. Well, if you want to look at the evidence, there shouldn't be routine mammography in anyone in any woman because the net harm is profoundly greater than any benefit. But there's this attachment to doing tests. Do you know there's over 10 billion lab tests done in the United States per year? Did you know that? Fascinating. Yeah, well, between the scans and the tests, this is all the US model of healthcare. And by the way, it happens to rank somewhere around 37th in the world for outcomes adjusted. For its population. So, for all this money that's being tossed into health care and consumed, there's little to show the benefit. And that's because, you know, there's so much more is done than necessary. And a lot of this is because the patients are the prey. And we we have all these unbelievable incentives, we have, you know, medical litigation issues, and that has got to get fixed. But unfortunately, the Accountable Care Act did nothing to get this on track because that was great for improving access and uh you know the whole idea of not having people with prior history you know um, not being able to uh, get health insurance but it didn't do anything to fix the core lesion which is overcooking ever doing everything too much
0: well, and beyond the perverse incentives, there's an awful lot of waste in, in the system even today. I mean, we all see commercials for expensive drugs like Humira and Embril. And yet in the book, you point out that the best clinical response on those type of drugs, those arthritis drugs in particular, is about 30%. That's right. How, how do we get past that? That's a, it's a huge number.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as in the book I talked about what well, we ought to have a model of guaranteed to succeed where if the drug doesn't work, you get your money back. You know, we almost all the new specialty drugs are a minimum of $100,000 for treatment, cancer, and as you mentioned, these new, relatively new drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, that drug class particularly, we're talking about $35 billion a year, and only at most $10 billion or $12 billion is helping people, and the rest is total waste. And the waste, I lump that with unnecessary, but it's unnecessary because we don't do anything to fix the problem. If we said they're only going to pay for things that work, can you imagine spending $100,000 on something and not getting a refund if it doesn't work? So we have a the mentality here that doesn't fit get, making an improvement. You know, we have the potential to put the pressure on these pricing and say, look, if it works, uh, great. And you know what? You charge what you're going to charge and we'll deal with that. But most of these drugs don't work in most people. Overall, the top 20 selling gross sales drugs, prescription drugs, only work in 20% of the people that they're used in. And that's really not acceptable. No, we, we're, too much, we're too smart to let that continue.
0: One of the other things that I enjoyed immensely about the book is that you kind of take on all comers, if you will. I know something that Reggie Hertzlinger over at Harvard has talked about an awful lot is that hospitals need to change, actually probably needed to change years ago from their current methods to new methods. Do you envision a future where hospitals as we know them today cease to exist?
1: Well, as we know them, yes, because the hospital that we'll see in the years ahead will have intensive care units, will have an emergency room. It'll have some fancy imaging equipment that you wouldn't have otherwise in other places, and it'll have operating rooms, and that's it. Everything else will be the home, the patient's bedroom, because we can do exquisite remote monitoring at a tiny fraction of the cost. I mean, an American hospital charge for one day in the hospital is on average of $4,600 now. And can you imagine how much of a data plan and uh, data analytics you can get for that, I mean, for one night versus in the patient's own bedroom, far safer and a lot more convenient. So this is where we're headed. And there will be hospitals, but their functions will be dramatically reduced because how regular hospital rooms are what the bulk of hospitals are made of today. We only have about a
0: minute or two left, and we always ask our guests how they envision the future. You've actually written it in the book. You talk about predicting and preempting disease. Can you chat for a moment or two about what that might look like?
1: Yeah, I think that's the most exciting part of all is that we talked a lot about prevention all these years. You know, I've been a physician for 30 years now, but we finally have the means to preempt major illnesses. And the ones that are first up are the ones that are in attack mode, like a heart attack and autoimmune disease attacks and seizures, those sorts of things. Because with analytics of sensors, we'll be able to know before things happen. And for like for an asthma attack, you'll know before there's even a wheeze that attack is coming. And this is really important because we could you know, really reduce the toll of these very serious conditions by using predictive analytics and machine learning on each individual's data that's relevant to that condition.
0: A fascinating discussion, and we could talk about the book for another hour at least, but I I recommend it highly to all of our listeners. It's called The Patient Will See You Now. Dr. Eric Topol. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience.
1: Oh, thank you, David. Really enjoyed the discussion with
0: you. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of the Saltzman Group. We work with entrepreneurs, executives, and companies just like you to help shape the shifts in your business. To schedule a 20-minute call to learn more, visit our website at thesaltzmangroup.com or call me directly at 803-386-8005. I'd love to hear from you. And while you're on our site, you can also click the podcast tab for the entire catalog of Shift Shapers episodes and to access some really great special offers. Give me a call at 803-386-8005 and learn how to put the secrets of the Shift Shapers to work in your business.